Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please subscribe to the show and please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference indeed. Before we kick things off, a big thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is a mission-first technology company seeking to increase empathy in the world using the internet as a source of knowledge, inspiration, and communication. Quilt AI works on issues including climate change, gender equality, and health across the world. They're headquartered in Singapore with teams in New York, Zurich, London, Delhi, and they believe that the true value of the internet has yet to be seen. The internet has been used to index data, store photos, and conduct e-commerce, but it truly has not yet been used to understand the other. And this is the mission that Quilt AI is on, that of converting the internet into a space of understanding and appreciation. So a big heartfelt thanks to our sponsors. Today, we welcome back onto the show, Tim Haworth, who is the Chief Executive Officer of United World Schools. And it's a wonderful charity that has launched over 200 schools in Myanmar, Cambodia, and Nepal. Now, for the top line context of what they do, where they do it, and why they do it, listen to, to the previous episode from last year where we have Tim on the show. But today we're going to drill into some specifics of their work that are truly going to be interesting if you're in operations within an education charity and particularly if you're operating internationally with schools. So the two things really we're going to be looking at today are exit planning. So if you build this school in Cambodia and you're fully in control of it and gradually you want to transition that school into the control of local government, how do you do that? And the aim there is to make sure that the school becomes a sustainable endeavor that doesn't clutter up your operations and allows you to move on to other things while the government takes charge of that school. And bearing in mind the success of the exit planning, what would further growth look like if you're looking to grow into new countries, if you're looking to get into a new region? So without further ado, Tim, a big heartfelt welcome back onto the Do One Better podcast. How are you today? Really good, and thanks very much for the invitation to, to join you and, and for keeping the podcast going. It's been a fascinating run. We were just talking offline about the great company that we're in with the, the guests, and it's a, it's a privilege to be back back with you. Excellent. Well, it's great to have you back on the show. Just for, um, for a little bit of a refresher, tell us a little bit about United World Schools. Sure. So, so we are an educational NGO. Cambodia, Myanmar, Nepal are our three countries of operation. We're, we're based in the UK, but, but we have a, a, an international approach to, to what we do. And, and what we do is relatively simple, which is aimed to, to through education, transform the lives of some of the, the very poorest children in the world who otherwise would have no access to any kind of education provision at all. So we work with communities to develop a simple community school that's aligned to the national system and sensitive to the local context. So that would include, for example, an ethnic minority language. And we work with the community to initially build and nurture the school to then start to mature it. And, and what we're going to talk about today is actually is almost the final stage of what we do with that community, which is to begin to transition it into the government system and thereby we are, if you like, helping very remote communities, ethnic minority communities, take part in civil society and almost sort of democratize some of the elements of, of, of society 
who are very remote, possibly forgotten about, possibly marginalized, but almost always very, very poor. Excellent. So how many schools have you launched thus far? So, so we now have 226 schools and learning sites across those three countries. Uh, and so a typical school for us serves around 150 children. So, so they are small and, and they are simple and, and hopefully effective in their uh, makeup. Uh, and we, uh, we, we generally aim to serve the whole community with a stage, not age approach. So, so although it's a, a primary school model, as we call it here in the UK, an, an elementary school model, it is focused on the basic building blocks of, of education, so literacy and numeracy. But we welcome older students. We welcome you know, 14, 15 year olds who maybe haven't had the chance to go to school themselves. And they may well move through that initial curriculum much quicker than a five-year-old sure. but it's still of course hugely relevant to their lives and, and without it they're kind of stuck in a in a very difficult situation which we which we could describe as a cycle of poverty or, or similar yeah now before we look at how you transition schools from from your organization into into the hands of local authorities mm. uh, how do you figure out where a school should go in the first place like where is it that you should build a school how long does that take? What's involved in getting a school uh, set up? Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's it's one of those important things that we do is make sure that we are a good fit for the communities that we serve. The last thing we need to be doing is turning up almost sort of colonial style and saying, you know, we're going to build you a school. It would be missing missing the point hugely. So, so what we do is, first of all, we identify areas of need. So, so regions where there are large populations of out-of-school children that are remote and, and difficult to reach, marginalized for, for different reasons. And secondly, we, we work within a landscape that uh, is welcoming to, to us and our models. So typically that would be a, a local government that says, okay, we haven't got the resource and capability to reach as, as many villages as we'd like to, but we're fed up with the number of out-of-school children in our region, so we'd like to work with you to solve that problem. And so that's that's what we do on a community by community basis. And, and we identify these communities, of course, with that local government, but not just that government. We also have teams on the ground who deliver our projects and, and they know the community. They, they know the, the landscape and, and they will be able to, to guide uh, you know, the, the, the next wave of, of school development. And, and the final and possibly most important group that we talk to are the local uh, ethnic minority communities and, and, and groups themselves, because they they will know you know where their, their their people are. They will know which villages have schools and don't have schools, uh, and so actually they're an enormously powerful source of information and, and possibly the most important people throughout the process. Very interesting. Now, when you're working with the government, do they know? Are they aware that the game plan is? for you guys to set up the school and then eventually to transition that school to their hands? Is that something that's uh, discussed from the outset? Yeah, and, and this is where, as an organization, we, we've learned. You know, uh, uh, and, and so the first few schools we built back in 2009, 10, 11 in Cambodia, it, it was sort of pioneering stuff where we probably didn't have our exit plan uh, really settled on you know we knew that there was great need we knew we might be able to uh, do a lot of good but we probably didn't have that exit plan really clearly defined and that's why we've been working really hard on it recently and we now start a project with both the government 
and the local community completely clear on the process, which is to get a school going, you know, get the students enrolled, nurture it into life, mature it, and then crucially transition that school into the local education authority in a way that doesn't undermine quality, in a way that's aligned to the national standards, and in a way that has that community very much part of the government system so that it can slot in in terms of practices and processes and pedagogy. Yeah. Now you just touched on quality, which is key in education. How do you ensure that your high quality standards will be adhered to when someone else is running the show? Yeah. And, and that's one of the most important considerations through this whole process is, is the duty of care to, to those students who have been through our schools, will go through our schools. And, and it's, it's interesting that I think you use the word high quality there. Mm. And, and we, we, we are cautious with that word. And the reason is the most important thing we can do is, is get a school up to a government standard, possibly slightly better than a typical government standard, but certainly up to that government standard in a position to transition into the system. If we went to a position where we were delivering the best quality school we could, that might be fantastic in the short term, but it'd be very difficult to take a, a school that has a lot of investment into a system that is perhaps not as rich in terms of its resource base. So we have to be mindful of, of what is relevant to the local context. Of course, that doesn't mean we can't have an effective school. So we try and make sure our schools are, the quality is relevant and is effective, but not necessarily high quality. Of course, if you can do that in a cost-effective way, that's brilliant, but it's not our primary aim, if, 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 if that makes sense in terms yeah. of the sort of so it needs to be point. it needs to be adequate. That's another good, another good word to use, exactly, yeah. Yeah. And what about the cycle, the time cycle from, mm. uh, from concept uh, to building the school to gradually tapering off and passing it on? Yeah. What, are we looking at, um, at a decade? Are we looking at a handful of years? What? Yeah. So, so there is some natural variation here. But in terms of a typical school life journey, mm -hmm. it, it may take us a year or two to develop the school. So, so that would almost be what you might call year zero. Okay. Once a school is up and running, the first stage is, is very much nurturing and, and developing the, the enrollment and, and getting students into the habit of turning up, you know, recognizing that these communities, uh, school has previously not been part of that community's existence. So, so it, it's habit forming. We then enter a, a stage where it's about maturing. And, and that's a real focus on getting schools up to an effective, relevant quality. That process could take two, three, four years, might take six, seven, eight years. But our model is trying to make sure that we have, if you like, that exit light lit after four or five years okay. and then happening within 10 years. And that means we can financially model the ongoing running costs for that five to 10 year period on average with the different schools that we run so that when we approach the local education authorities or when we approach a local community, we're not just saying to them, we're going to build you a school. We're saying we're going to work with you for five to 10 years to get this school really working well for you as a community. And then we're going to work with you and your community leadership to make sure it's transitioned into the local education authority where you will then be supported by us in a much lighter touch way 
to run your school in the way that you see fit with government funding. And it's not just the school building, right? I mean, you need to worry about workforce as well. If you haven't Absolutely. had any school within the neighborhood, where are the teachers going to come from? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's one of, the, one of the things we've had to really think through carefully is the particular challenge we have of community teachers. So just for context, mm-hmm. in a typical UWS school, we will have a couple of community teachers. Now, they will speak the indigenous language and the mother tongue of the students turning up. Vital if you are a five-year-old and you have never heard the national language, it's vital when you turn up to school that you're hearing a language you're familiar with. Mm. But of course, we need to get the school into the government system. So that's why from outset, we'll, we'll also have typically a couple of government teachers who will be teaching the national curriculum. But of course, by blending the community teachers and the government teachers, we're helping reduce that language barrier, which means that hopefully those students can learn the curriculum in a way that moves them towards proficiency by about grade four in the national language. So, of course, those community teachers who are paid by United World Schools have to have their salary funded until the government can take them on as uh, what you, you might describe as a as a contract teacher or a teaching assistant or mm-hmm. similar. And, and so that's part of our transition process that we agree with the local government and the local commune, the local district, if you like, how they're going to fund these vital people who are the community teachers, you know, the people that broker that, that, that language gap and, and making sure that they have ongoing employment contracts, as well as, of course, funding the, the school resources and, yeah. and the upkeep of the building and, and all the usual stuff that people who run schools, you know, do on a day-to-day basis. So therefore, with those teachers, you basically have a relationship with the government from the very outset. Correct. And, and that's mm-hmm. one of the expressions that, that we use is we try and develop an exit plan from outset. Uh-huh. And, 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 and I, I remember it was a fantastic talk by, by another, another, another NGO who, who a few years ago talked about the, uh, the little green light with a person running towards a door that you sometimes get above a, a door in an office building or in yeah. a school and said, you know, that, keep that in mind. That, that, that's your exit sign. Just as you plan things, keep that in mind. And, and it really, really stuck with me. And we now use the exit sign, or of course, what we call our, our school transition process. We use that as a bit of a strategic guiding light. So to in order to deliver long-term sustainability and long-term success of the charity of the NGO, we actually use transition now to help us inform our, our key decision-making. Great. I like the... Uh... I like the uh, the link to the little green man. It really stuck with me. Yeah. And, no, and now it will with me as well. So, <laughs> and tell me, so when we get into the nitty gritty, when yeah. you're having a senior management team meeting, mm. when you're liaising with your with your country director in in Nepal, mm. and 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 their uh, team with School X, for instance, what does that transition plan actually look like? So. Yeah. How many, even to say, how many pages do you have on it? What are the tick boxes that you're going through? What, what actually happens? Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, uh, in order to, to sort of just, just, just help uh, guide people through this process, I, I might just use a series of P words okay. to help structure that. So, those words are, are pot, people, and then practices, processes, as well as pedagogy. Mm-hmm. So, so, the pot one, of course, is financial. And 
you know, it, it may be not the most glamorous part of the NGO world, but it is for sure one of the most important, which is to ensure financial sustainability for the projects that we implement. So that, so that's why the financial pot is what we look at very carefully. We look at what our expenditure is on a school by school basis, what the government and local community can afford and bridge the gap. And that may mean having to reduce our costs over time as we run a school to bring those costs per child down to the government level, at which point we know that we've got the government support with a mm. Ministry of Finance approved MOU, Memorandum of Understanding, which enables us then to, in a respectful way, hold people to account to make sure that those communities are going to get that funding that's been pledged. So that, that if you like, ensures the financial sustainability or all the pot will be there for the long term. The, the people side is, is, is similarly absolutely vital. So this is where, as a school we run matures, one of the things we move towards is training our community teachers and, and our head teacher and our school support committee. So this is a representative body from the community that help run the school, a little bit like a sort of governor's group that we might see in a school in, in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. And we, we focus on training for them that enables them to say, well, okay, you know, we need to be in a position and frankly empowered to run our school well to, and to lead our school well and, and continue to develop our school in the right way for our, our students, for our children in the right way. The other people aspect is, is that relationship with, with the local authorities. And, and so with support of typically the, the, the national system or the national ministry, for example, the, 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 the education ministry. We work through them with the leaders of the district or provincial education authorities to develop the ongoing relationship and partnership that, that has the political capital that we know is vital to make these things work. Mm. So, so, so it's, it's in our interest to be able to transition the schools because we're not going to look after them forever. And, and it would be, you know, very onerous on our brilliant supporters to ask them to finance a school forever. But on the other hand, it's not a bad deal actually for the provincial education office to say to them, look, we're going to do these things for 10 years or so. We're going to build these things. We're going to help train the people who will look after these schools for the long term. We need you to now come on board once we've got the school into a position where it's ready to go into your system. And by doing that, as an organization, United World Schools can then help you with new communities and new villages that you want to get into your system as well. So it's ideally structuring the the win-win and then having the the social capital and the political capital wrapped around that to to make that work. So that's the sort of people side. Yeah. So pot, people, process. And that includes the sort of practices and, and pedagogy. So, so that, again, it links to that training piece, but it's making sure that what we're doing in these schools is appropriate and relevant for the national system. And, and with great respect, it doesn't necessarily mean that the national system is going to be winning international awards for effectiveness. You know, we know that some of the, the national curriculum, for example, in the countries we work, it is work in progress. You know, it, 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 it may need areas of improvement. But on the other hand, we want to make sure that we've got a school that is aligned to that system, but also delivering the kind of pedagogy and has the internal processes that will mean that school is, is run as well as it can be within the context of the, of the local system. Yeah. 
Now, you haven't mentioned this, but it's maybe an observation on my part, which may or may not be accurate. Would it be fair to say that in your case, you're looking to build these schools and then gradually transition them to government, to local authorities, so that then you can build additional schools elsewhere? Bearing that in mind and bearing your constraints in terms of cash and resources, would it be fair to say that you're, you would look to speed up that cycle between build and handover so that it shortens and then you can free up resources to move on to other things? So it's certainly, the, the, we're very much incentivized to move through that process with a degree of momentum. Uh, I'd, I'd probably caveat that by recognizing that where we develop schools, we are talking really, really remote regions, you know, mm -hmm. sort of jung jungle areas, you know, deep into the foothills of the Himalaya. We're talking about uh, mountainous jungle in, in the Shan state of Myanmar, which, you know, a very remote area. Uh, these areas have a fragility in terms of right. education systems. So it may look great on paper to say, oh, you know, can we maybe say transition it after five years rather than six? Now, of course, you know, that's, I think, a, a very worthy objective. However, I think what trumps that is the duty of care to the community and making sure that what we are transitioning is robust, is well run, and ultimately is delivering what it should be delivering for those children. And we also know that, that education is a long game and a full course of primary education takes five, five or six years. So therefore, what our aim is to make sure that the school is in a position to deliver a full course of primary education aligned to the national curriculum. And, and so, look, you know, if you can do things a bit quicker, that's fantastic. But that wouldn't necessarily be the, be the primary driver. Ultimately, right. the, the mission is delivered by, 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 by developing a robust school that will be there for generations to come. Mm. And the different municipalities you deal with, like most individuals, like most human beings, I imagine some are better than others. Some are, <laughs> some are easier to work with than others. Uh, does that mean that if you find one or two truly engaging and wonderful local municipalities that don't have the resources and need your help, does that mean that you come in and if you succeed with one school or two, you actually focus on that particular municipality before moving on to others? One of the hardest things we have to decide on is where to implement our finite resource because you know, there are 60 million or so out-of-school children around the world. Now, that's a great big problem, and, 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 and there are many, many organizations doing fantastic stuff to tackle that. However, we've got a finite resource like most organizations, so we have to be really business-like and objective in terms of where we invest that resource. Now, if we've got the political capital from that, those uh, district ministry of education or, or similar, the, the, the Office of Education, Clearly, that reduces our, our cost in mm. terms of developing each school and therefore reduces the cost per child, which means we can reach more children with our finite resource base. And I know that may sound very cold, but it is a sort of business-like way that we have to operate in order to deliver our mission, which is to, to get as many children into school as possible in, in, in the most efficient way from a, from a financial point of view. Yeah, well, it makes, makes perfect sense. And what about the... Uh the growth elsewhere. So mm. you're operating in three specific countries and we've been talking about how you set up the schools and how you transition them off to, to local governments, local authorities. Bearing in mind or assuming that you're succeeding on that, 
how do you then use that success to start thinking about your your growth planning into new countries or new regions? Uh, and it's it's a really exciting opportunity because when we set out initially as an organisation, our objectives were, were much more humble than, than what they are right now. But but that's all credit to to the teams we have and and, and our, our supporter base, our, our donors who have believed in us now for you know ten twelve years, and and we've had a, a, a real run of success as a result. And and also that means that we sort of have a duty of care to them and to our mission to say, well, where else can this model work? And and so that's one of the strategic questions that we're grappling with right now. And it's not because we necessarily sort of want to expand for the sake of growth. Mm-hmm. It's more to say, well, if we are in a position to successfully transition schools into the local education authorities, we've got a model here that really can make a major dent in that 60 million out-of-school children problem and deliver that sustainable development goal for all about universal education by 2030 so we almost have a sort of duty of care to, to give it a go and and hard baked into our dna as an organization is to be bold and ambitious about what we can achieve because we're all passionate about doing the most we can to help some of the most vulnerable and, and poorest children on the planet so so on that basis we're always looking to to see where else can we do what, what else can we do uh, and, and so we've, we have criteria, as you'd imagine, that, that hopefully allows us to sort of fairly objectively look at the opportunities. And, and it's often the case that we have a sort of clear set of criteria, but there's, there's also tactics to be overlaid. And so it's almost trying to combine the two because, you know, as, as good as a plan looks on paper, we know that the moment you move it to implementation, you, you've got to recognize the, the, the world's complicated. So, you consider the sort of the strategy and the tactics and you try and bring it together. And, and uh, some of the, the key criteria for, for where next. Well, one is we've done really well with our fantastic teams in Myanmar, Cambodia and Nepal. So let's keep going there. So we're looking for new regions in those countries mm-hmm. to make sure that we're really maximizing our opportunity to serve the, the poorest communities in those countries. And, and of course, again, that's hopefully relatively cost-effective to do that. But also, we don't want to limit ourselves just to those three countries. So, so our criteria for moving to new countries, again, is, is relatively simple, which is, first of all, all about the level of need. So that's our North Star. That's our guiding light. Are we actually going into places that really needs support to get out-of-school children into school? Mm-hmm. If that's clear, then... The second thing that's crucial for us, and this links to this transition discussion, is is partnerships, particularly partnerships with the government at national and regional level. So if we've got if we've got that buy-in, and we've also got the the regulatory landscape, i.e., the political capital, so the government who are helping us with our process, because you know, as you said earlier, you know, life is complicated and, and, and things get stuck. So you always need a government that's happy to work with you. And then the final point is, well, can we engage our, our supporters and donor base to, to make sure we've got the funding for the long term? So that criteria is simply level of need, partnerships, the, the political and regulatory landscape, and then funding. And if we get a sort of green light, green light, green light, green light, well, well, that's a really exciting proposition for us. Yeah. Now, as I understand it, the, the, the operations that you have in these three countries, you're the operating charity on the ground as well. You're not grabbing onto a delivery partner on the ground is that correct 
That, that's correct, absolutely. And, and, and that's enabled us to, to grow relatively swiftly. Uh, perhaps one of the, the limitations there actually is growth, though. Uh, exactly. Well, of- that was going to be the, the question, which is, is there anything, any merit in embracing a sort of social franchise model where yeah. you know exactly what works and what doesn't because of your extensive experience? Could you, could somebody come in with your blessing and avail themselves of your knowledge and your playbook and you manage the quality and so forth, but they, they're, they're sort of delegated to, to run with it in a new country, for instance. Absolutely correct, and, and and that's where I, I, I hope that we're we're humble enough to to keep learning from others who 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 know different countries and different regions, you know, clearly far better than we could. And and so if we've got a complementary skill set that is going to enable us to ultimately serve our mission, but also serve the mission of others as well. So so for for example, uh, we know that we can work with organizations that want to have literate and numerate communities to help serve their particular focus. So, mm-hmm. so, so, so literate and numerate communities are more likely to be part of the democratic process. They're more likely to have access to healthcare. They're more likely to have uh, m- maternal health indicators moving in the right direction, for just, just a- as an example. So literacy and numeracy can be real building blocks for, for human development. And that's where those kind of organizations that we can work with, which is what we're actively really looking to do, can hopefully serve our mission, serve their mission. And, you know, most importantly, together, serve the stakeholders, serve the, the beneficiaries, the people who, who ultimately are going to benefit from our support much better as a result. And that, and, that, and that hopefully means we can sort of mature the organization further, mature United World Schools further, increase our reach, but, but, but do so in an ever-increasingly effective way. Well, that's great. Well, you've heard it here, folks. If uh, if, you're, <laughs> if you're involved with an education charity, if you're a philanthropist engaged in education, if you're passionate about this space, then I think uh, I think Tim is somebody to reach out to. By the way, before we wrap up, uh, congratulations! I understand you you've recently been uh, quite uh, quite successful with securing um, the UK Aid Match uh, uh, picked for, for UK Ed Match, and also you've received a literacy award from UNESCO. Tell us a little bit about those two things. Sure. And, and look, we're, we're, we're both delighted and honored, respectively. Um, de- delighted be- because uh, we are a growing organization. We're not a big, we're not necessarily a big organization, but we are, we are now next year, uh, pending the, you know, as you expect, the, the final due diligence. It's taxpayers' money after all, but we are now set to work with uh, uh, what used to be called DFID, but certainly uh, the the agency that it will evolve into on what's called UK Aid Match, which means that every pound donated by uh, a British taxpayer will be matched pound for pound by the government, and that that will happen in the three month window of next year, and and that ultimately means you know we can reach twice as many children with these with these programs as as we normally could. So it's a fantastic Great. opportunity for us. One of the things that that, that was important for the the, the assessment of, of that particular uh, campaign getting the green light was directly actually related to this recent award that we received, which is all about community empowerment. So mm-hmm. so we're, we're, we're thrilled, we're honoured, and, and this is huge credit to, to the teams in Myanmar, Cambodia, and Nepal, uh, that we are one of the UNESCO 2020 award winners for their education programs. We're actually the first UK 
NGO to receive this this particular award, which is the King Sejong Literacy Award. And it's all about our community teachers who speak the ethnic minority language, enabling ethnic minority mother tongue students to get into school to then be a part of a process that gets them into the national system, but does so in a way that's sensitive to their to their language needs, ultimately reducing bar- barriers to entry. So it's just a particular part of our model that UNESCO have, have recognised. But, but what underpins that is is this empowerment piece, which is just fundamental to, to what we do. And I think what many other great NGOs do as well, which is to recognise our job is to, to make the world better through other people. We can't necessarily be there to support everybody forever. Um, you know, that, that exit sign, that, that, that little green light um, needs to be in mind, but we do so in a way that's, that has the, the the communities that we work with very much at the heart of it and, and ready to take things on for the long term. Well, many, many congratulations. I'm glad your hard work's being uh, recognized and uh, it must feel great. It, look, this is a tough year for everybody, right? But look, the, 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 there are also some some really great milestones to recognize as well. You know, And this is, is really, really good for our teams, great for our supporters, and brilliant news for, for the students and, and, and the children who we can uh, we can support in future years as well, which, of course, is what indeed. it's all about. Indeed, indeed. Tell me and tell us, what's the, what's that key takeaway you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after today's episode? <laughs> well, it, certainly we could talk about uh, little green lights um, above doors and all that sort of stuff. But but I, I, I think I'd probably just just step back from that and and and. And, and the key, the key takeaway is, is actually something we've recently been talking about at the organization. As you can probably tell from this conversation, this is ideas that are developing and, and, and they're not all fully formed. But I, I wanted to share with you today and, and, and with the good listeners of the Do One Better podcast, but because it's great just to share our thinking. And, and, and the key bit of thinking here is, is to use this transition concept as an absolute guiding light for our overall strategy, because that means we ultimately can deliver the mission and we are, we are leaving behind an empowered, well-run, robust project. So it's almost turning the dial up on the most important part of a successful pro- project, which is can you exit successfully? And then really threading that through all of our thinking from outset. Excellent. Excellent. What a great parting thought. Tim, thank you so very much for joining thank you. us. Yeah, no, it's been great having you on the show. You've been listening to Tim Howarth who is the Chief Executive Officer of United World Schools. And to our listeners, thank you, as always, for tuning in and for spreading the word. We rely on you to, to make the Do One Better podcast an increasing success. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's lidji.org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better.